So you can imagine, if you were here last week, my horror when I, in traveling home yesterday, as you all were worshiping, if you were here last week, um, you know that Tony and I were not here. We were coming back from Tennessee with um, Ryan, and we'll get to that in a minute. But um, my horror when I, as Tony was driving, I looked on social media and I saw the district superintendent had posted after having visited to worship at Parish United Methodist Church that morning. <laughs> the district superintendent who I'm supposed to tell when I'm out of town. The district superintendent I did not tell because I thought, what are the odds? <laughs> Fortunately, um, two, two blessings in that. One, that dad was here with you and he knows how to handle DSs. And, um, and two, we have a wonderful DS. Let me tell you, Rini is top quality and uh, I look forward to him being back. And those of you that were here uh, last week got to um, you know hear from him and, and maybe even speak to him. He's such a, a diminutive little guy, um, but he's he's a powerful man, and I and I really really love him, and um, and I'm glad for his graciousness when I sucked up to the best of my ability for uh, for not for not being here. Now I, I appreciate in conjunction with that some of you are um, asking about how Ryan's doing and how he's settled in and he's doing great and had his first week of class and so it was good for Tony and I to have that kind of long weekend with him last week. I learned something. I learned something I did not know in being up there because uh, I lived in a dorm room for four years so I'm, I, I had that experience in college. I didn't know till I had a son that apparently I don't know how to decorate a dorm room. Um, that that it's not just enough that there are blinds on the windows, but there must be curtains as well. And um, that a bedpost is not sufficient for hanging up your wet towel. You have to have proper hooks around the room. So I was educated on the proper, I don't know how I survived. So, um, so my job largely was to put anything together that needed to be put together and to stay out of the way. And I think I did that fairly well. Uh, but it was fun to be there for a couple of days on the campus. Uh, you know, Tony and I would, would walk around. They had these big picnics and things. So all the, the students were coming back on campus. So, you know, all these young 18 to, you know, young 20-somethings. And, and we're just observing and we're watching. And we're just taking inventory of things that we see. And I couldn't help but think, did we act this way? Um, and I'm sure we did, but, you know, it, it didn't seem like it was that far, that long ago. But being back in the environment, uh, you know, I, I, I felt strangely and, and significantly kind of out of place, even as much as, as, much as I enjoyed it. And, and it's fun to get kind of around the energy of that because, you know, it's a time in your life. And these young people come in and they're, they're idealistic. They're full of, of, of optimism for the, for the future and for what life has in store, as they should be. And, and I say that respectfully. In fact, I think one of our great challenges as we get older is to not let life beat that out of us, you know, to, to embrace some of that. And, and so it was fun to, to kind of just feel the energy on campus there. And, and it reminded me of, of, an, of a story of a, of a young man who was about college age. And he was getting a degree in business, and he wanted to, he wanted to just, he wanted to achieve all his wildest dreams. He wanted to be successful, he wanted to be wealthy, he wanted to be significant. 
And so he was fortunate enough to have an opportunity to get an audience with a billionaire businessman, one of these wildly successful, you know, Bill Gates kind of people. And in this conversation, he asked him, he said, what is the, the number one reason you've been successful? What's the most significant thing I can do to be successful like you? And the man looked at him, he thought for a second, he said, the number one reason for my success is hard work. And the young man thought about it, and his face got kind of long, and he looked at him, he said, okay, what's the number two reason? <laughs> and it reminds me, that story, of a tendency some of us have, not all of us, but some of us, and I'll put myself in there, that sometimes we want it to come easy. Whatever it is, we, we'd really want it to come easy. We may not say that because we know the value of hard work. We know the, 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 the lessons of perseverance. We, we know all of that. But, but if we're honest, we really want it to come easy. That's why you buy lottery tickets. Right? So, so we can be rich without any of the effort. Well, it is human nature. It's not always wrong necessarily, but it can be detrimental. And sometimes that mentality that if it could just be easy, if, if it won't take so much hard work, it won't take too many challenges, if we can have everything we want without requiring too much of us, that, that mindset can begin to permeate our, our understanding of faith and what it means to follow Jesus. And we can buy into that same kind of a, an expectation and that is not only detrimental to our walk with Christ, I, I think it can often be very, very sinful in our walk with Christ. And it's an easy trap to fall into. And, and Jesus speaks to it. And he speaks to it in this portion of Matthew 16 that, uh, that I want us to, to, to focus on for a few minutes this morning. Now this what we're going to read from 21 through 28 comes on the heels of Peter's confession of Christ at Caesarea Philippi. And we're not reading that section this morning, but I'm going to refer back to it. So if you have your Bibles open, just leave your Bibles open. But I'm going to talk about that because it's significant to understand this story in light of, of that story. But, but here Jesus confronts a temptation that I think many of us can easily fall into. So we're going to pick it up at verse 21. And this is what we read. It says, From this time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. I want you to sit with that word for a moment. Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. And here's Jesus' response. Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are, you are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. 
And Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what they have done. Truly I tell you, some of you are standing here who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God for the people of God. Let us pray. Lord, speak, speak, speak. But as you do, Lord, help us hear. I pray each of us would be open to your word. I pray that these words that, that are shared in these moments are truly from you, inspired by your Holy Spirit, faithful to your voice, and that you would use each of us and draw each of us closer to Christ and closer to one another. We pray in your holy name. Amen. So one of the, the wonderful benefits of having now finished my, my graduate studies and, and being done with, I pray, um, classes and that, that journey of education is, is I get a, a little bit of a bonus. It's kind of a gift. It's kind of a part of the, the Asbury Seminary um, alumni community. I get a gift. And one of those gifts is that a couple times a year, if I want to, I can go back to either the campus in Kentucky or the campus in Orlando, and I can audit classes. How many are familiar with what it means to audit a class? You know what that means? Okay. If you don't know, to audit a class, for those of you who don't, means that I can go back, maybe take a, a New Testament study course or, or a Christian ethics or ministry, whatever it may be, and I can go to class and I can learn from these scholars. I can sit and I can listen to their lectures. I can take notes on their insights and their wisdom. I can absorb what they have to offer. And I don't have to do a daggum another thing. I don't have to write papers. I don't have to take tests. I don't have to deal with grades. There's nothing on the line. I can just come and receive, and I don't have to do anything. All the things that stress us out when you're a student at any level, all the things you worry about, I ain't got to do any of that. I can just audit it. I can take, 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 and really, I ain't got to give nothing. You can audit the course. And that's a wonderful gift, and I hope to take advantage of that in some of the short, concentrated courses they, they offer somewhere down the line. Nothing wrong with auditing a course. Now, you don't get a diploma. You don't get credits. You're not working toward anything, but you get all the, the, the you know, you get the chance to absorb all the wisdom you can. Now, here's the, the danger of, of an audit mentality. Tony Evans talks about this in his book, one of his books. Sometimes that audit mentality where we think it's about what I can get, that audit mentality begins to permeate our faith. And we begin to treat faith in that same kind of mindset. I'm going to come to church. Well, what am I going to come to church for? So I can hear some inspiring words, hopefully. Um, you know, I can hear some, some insight. I can sing wonderful music. I can enjoy the fellowship. I can get all of these things, which is a part of faith. And there's nothing inherently wrong with receiving these blessings. 
but it never becomes about what we're called to do. The road that we're called to walk, the, the faith that we're called to live out, the sacrifices that we're called to make. It becomes kind of the equivalent of sitting on your couch and watching television. Let me just take it in. The problem is, there is nothing biblical, there's nothing faithful, there's nothing obedient about a faith that is limited to what you're getting. If it stops there, you've, you've not understood the call of faith. And that's what Jesus has to confront repeatedly in his ministry. Now, Matthew 16, this chapter of the gospel, is a pivotal turning point in the gospel story. Up until this point, much of the focus of Jesus' ministry has been with the crowds. He's had his disciples. He's spent time with his disciples. But a lot of it has been teaching the masses. Um, miracles. Uh, healing the sick. Um, sight to the blind. Feeding 5,000. All of these wonderful stories that we know from the ministry of Jesus. And in Matthew 16, a pivot happens. And Jesus begins to kind of work his journey toward Jerusalem toward what we will know will be that culmination of his ministry in his arrest, in his persecution, in his crucifixion, in his death, and in his resurrection. And as he begins to prepare for that, he begins to circle tighter with his disciples. He begins to spend more time with them and begins to work to prepare them for what's coming. And so in verses 13 through about 20, he gathers them at the place called Caesarea Philippi. And he asks them a question. Two questions, really. And you can go back and read this um, in its entirety if you want to. It's just a few verses. But he asks them two questions. The first question is this. He says, who do people say that I am? Who are people saying I am? And the response is, well, they're saying you're John the Baptist. You're Elijah. You're, you're a teacher. You're a preacher. You're a prophet. You're a man of wisdom. There's a lot of ways to understand what that means. But, but they're saying that, that you're somebody significant. And then Jesus asks this question. It's the question we all must answer at some point in our journey with him. And here's the question. Who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And it is in response to that that Peter answers. At verse 16, he says, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Not just a teacher, not just a preacher, not just a rabbi. You are the promised one. And to that, Jesus responds with these words. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not overcome it. You are Peter. You are the rock, and on this rock I will build my church. He goes on to say, what you loose in heaven will be loosed on earth. What you bind in heaven will be bound on earth. He's given Peter. He is affirming Peter for his ability to see, not with physical eyes, but with eyes, spiritual depth, to allow the Holy Spirit to speak and to reveal to him the truth. And this has to be a high point. It has to be, I think, a high point of Peter's life, to have Jesus look at you and bless you and affirm your insight and to say, you're the rock. You're, you're, you're somebody. You matter. Man, that has to be a powerful moment in Peter's life. And that's important to grasp because it's about to change real fast. In the very 
next story that Matthew tells us. Jesus still with these disciples. He begins to explain to them in greater detail what being Messiah means. They've affirmed it. The problem is they don't understand it. And he says that as Messiah, as promised one, this is what's going to happen. I'm going to be arrested. I'm going to be persecuted by the religious leaders, by the authorities. I am going to be killed. And on the third day, I'll rise again. And it is into that, Peter, as Peter always does, because he's the rock, right? He's the foundation. You're going to build the church. So it's time for Peter to speak up. And this is what Peter says. No way. That can't happen. Why? Because you're Messiah. You're God's son. I just said that, right? I just said Messiah, son of God. There's no way that God's going to let that happen to you because God's going to take care of you, right? You're special. You're chosen. You matter. You're the promised one. God won't let that happen to you. And here, with significance, how Jesus responds. He looks at Peter, the rock, and he says, get behind me, Satan. And if that doesn't startle you, you know the story too well. If that doesn't startle you, you're not listening. Because put yourself in that situation. Put yourself in a conversation with somebody that you respect, you value, whose opinion matters, that you love. And imagine them to your words looking at you and saying to you, get behind me, Satan. Imagine how those words would sting that's what Jesus says to Peter. Is he saying, Peter's Satan? No, he's not saying that. But he's saying that there's something behind those words that springs from evil. There's something behind those words that springs from disobedience. There's something that's from those words that springs from a failure to understand what the things of God look like. In fact, that's what he says. Your words are because you're pursuing the things of man, not the things of God. Get behind me, Satan. And it reminds us how subtle the adversary, how subtle evil, how subtle Satan works in our lives. Because Jesus has encountered this before. I think in that moment, he went back to a previous experience in his own life. In Matthew chapter 4, in Luke chapter 4, before he begins his public ministry, you you may remember the story. Jesus goes into the wilderness to fast and to pray. And it is in that time that he encounters Satan, and he is tempted in three ways. In his hunger, he's tempted to turn stones to bread. In his um, spiritual communion with God, he's tempted to throw himself off the pinnacle and allow the angels to catch him, because certainly God would let nothing happen to his son to demonstrate his power and his importance. And he's tempted finally to just bow down and worship the powers of this world, to worship Satan and allow all that the world can provide to be his. What he's tempted, see, it sounds really big and it sounds profound and, and it sounds ominous. And, and it is in many sense all those things. But, but temptation in our lives is also often very, very subtle. It is just a temptation to begin to do the things that we want rather than the things that God desires. 
It's a temptation to begin to look first and foremost to take care and protect ourselves rather than to offer ourselves for others. That's what the temptation of Jesus was. Jesus, you're hungry. Use your powers to feed yourself. Now, that doesn't seem like a big deal. He fed 5,000 people on a mountain. He couldn't feed himself in a time of hunger. But Jesus understood what it was. There's a power to say, I'm not going to be about what God wants. I'm going to be about what I want. And, and all of those temptations speak to the same thing. And when Peter says, it can't happen to you, Jesus, that's what he's saying. He's saying, no, that's too high a cost. That's too great a sacrifice. That's not what God wants of you. And in that moment, I believe Jesus hears that same temptation. Take care of yourself rather than do the thing that God has called you to do. And he rebukes that kind of a spirit. Because he knows that his life, his purpose, his call is to give his life so that we would have life. To offer his life as a sacrifice, to be the cornerstone. The name above all names. But he knows that requires his willingness to lay his life down. And then he reminds Peter, and he reminds his disciples, and he reminds us who are sometimes tempted to want the easy way, to want to buy into this notion that following Jesus means the path gets smooth, smooth and the road gets straight, and you will be blessed materialistic above imagination. That sounds great. But don't buy it. I don't care what the televangelists tell you. Don't buy it. It's not the way of Jesus. And he looks at his disciples and he lays the gauntlet down. And he says to them, not only is this the path of the Messiah, it's the path of those who would follow the Messiah. If you are going to be my disciple, you must deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. Take up your cross and follow me. See, we talk about carrying our crosses, but I'm going to tell you, we water that down. I water that down. You have a, 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 a co-worker that's a thorn in your flesh. And what do we say? Yeah, he's my cross to bear. You know, your kids are giving you headaches, for, you know, in this time, ah, that's my cross to bear. You know, the, the, the bills aren't getting paid or you're struggling. That's my cross to bear. All of those things are significant and they matter. I'm not diminishing them. But that is not your cross to bear. Because cross meant one thing. You are willing to lay your life down. It would be no different as if Jesus looked at us and said, to be my disciple, you've got to be willing to go to the gallows, to stand before the firing squad, to take the needle. And that may make us uncomfortable. And that may sound awful harsh, but that's exactly what he was saying to his disciples. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who stayed in Germany when he could have gotten out during the Nazi reign, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who stood up against the Nazis and the persecution of the Jews, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was executed in a concentration camp two weeks before it was liberated in 1945, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and I'm saying that because you need to know he lived it, he says in the beginning of his book, The Cost of Discipleship, that when Jesus calls a man or a woman, he bids him to take up his cross and come and die. And the point is that there is no conditions that we place on discipleship other than our obedience. And there's no promise when we follow Jesus that the road's easy, the path is smooth, and it's not going to have its challenges. 
The promise is that Jesus embodies and is active and real in those moments and is with us and is working even in the midst of the struggles and the difficulties that we face in faith for his purpose and his plan. And I wish it was easier. I wish that Jesus had said, when you follow me, life gets really easy. That'd be nice. I sometimes want that. I do. I, I confess it. I know when I'm getting tired and kind of feeling beaten down by life and ministry and everything else, it's because I lay in bed at night and I start fantasizing about winning the lottery. Which is crazy because I don't buy tickets. But <laughs> I do. Because then I could just walk away. I mean, who has not had that fantasy? Forget it. I'm out. I got all the money I need. I'm going to go buy an island. You'll never hear from me again. Good luck to you. You know? I, I get it. And I said, going, Lord, I know you called me to this. Why is it so hard? Why isn't this easier? And then Jesus reminds me of the cross. And I go, oops. That's who we follow, the man who died on that. Where in the world do we get the idea in the Gospels that that's an easy path? That following Jesus is simple. He says, this way is hard. This way is hard. But it's powerful. Because you've got to deny yourself. You deny yourself because that's how the world changes. That's how the world changes. Our faith is built on the foundation of a Savior who denied himself and went willingly to the cross that our sins would be forgiven and our eternity would be secure. And our blessings would be now. Not materialistic, not simple, but blessings of Christ's presence, of a relationship with our Heavenly Father. That's who we follow. And we're deluding ourselves when we buy into this notion that the path of Christianity is comfortable. It's sitting on the couch, remote in one hand, and big drink in the other. It's not the way of Jesus. It's not the way of Jesus. And we would do well to embrace the call to deny ourselves and serve as the one who we worship denied himself and served us. Because when we do, the world changes. For weeks, all we heard about was the division in our country. The hatred, the anger, the division, the, 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 the mean-spirited attacks, all of this stuff. In the aftermath of Harvey, and I want to be careful how I say this, because please understand, that's tragedy. And I don't believe God desired that on anyone. But in the aftermath of that, what inspirational stories we've heard of men and women who have put aside their well-being, put themselves at risk to save, to protect, to rescue those who were in jeopardy. Didn't matter if you were black, white, Hispanic, Republican, Democrat, Christian, non-Christian, it didn't matter. People saw a need and they responded. And out of that, I have been blessed. I have been thankful for the opportunity to hear those stories. Not thankful that the storm hit. But boy, I've been more than willing to let those other stories be back, back page stuff. Because we see how God works. And when we do that, you understand, when we model self-sacrifice, we model Jesus. Jesus doesn't ask us to walk a path he hasn't walked before. We model the things that make us human. It's not intellect, or not just intellect. It's compassion. It's willingness to lay down a life for someone else. It's the ability to forgive and show grace. That's what makes us 
powerfully human because that's what reflects the image of the God in whose likeness we were created. Are you willing to walk the path? Am I willing to walk the path that Jesus calls? Sometimes I'm afraid I'm not. Sometimes I have to hear those stark words of Jesus, get behind me, Satan, because I really would like it to be easier sometimes. That's not what Jesus promises. He promises to be with us and to do powerful things through our faithfulness. Pastor was talking about one day. Somebody asked him. He was going through a tough time in ministry. Life was hard. Things were, you know, he was, he was suffering on a lot of fronts. And they asked him, why do you do it? Why don't you quit? The stress you deal with, the demands are inhuman. Why don't you do, just quit? And he's like, sometimes I really, really want to. Sometimes I really want to. And then I look at this strange, loving man hanging on a cross. And he reminds me I can't. Reminds me I can't. Because we keep pushing for the one who did it for us. So find strength. Find strength. Abandon the notion of comfortable Christianity. And embrace the call for obedient Christianity. Amen? Let's pray. Gracious Lord, we, uh, we confess to you that we do fall short. We confess to you that sometimes... I confess to you, Lord, sometimes I want the easy way. Remind me, that's not the path of discipleship. That's not the way of Jesus. Help me to walk faithfully. Help us to walk faithfully, walk obediently, and walk in your grace and mercy. We pray in Christ Jesus. Amen.